Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44. feel sorry for everybody who left for spring break because I decided to reserve my best message for the semester, for this morning. So, we're going to be in Isaiah 44 this morning. Everybody else is doing it. Did you ever say that to your parents? It seemed like really good logic when we were kids. Dad, can't I go have a, a, a BB gun war with the neighbor kids? Because everybody else is doing it. Now that we're older and wiser and we're in the parental position, we probably hear our parents' words coming from our own mouths. You know, would you jump off a bridge just because everybody else is doing it? The answer, of course, is yeah, probably. <laughs> probably, if it looked like fun, everybody else is doing it. Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to read through the book of Isaiah much as we've gone through the semester, but one of the things you would have observed is that the great sin of Israel's history is idolatry. And the great tragedy of idolatry is that it reduced Israel to the level of every other nation around them. All the other nations were doing it. All the other nations were idolatrous. It was a great tragedy because they became just like everyone else. See, God rescued the nation of Israel out of slavery. He formed it into a nation. He gave it the law so that it could understand its unique and special covenant relationship with him. The law is a, it's a summary of how this people were to uniquely and specially, uh, intimately relate to God. It is encapsulated in the Ten Commandments that begin like this. You shall have no other gods before me. And in case they wondered what he meant by no other gods, it goes on. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. In other words, anything that is in the created realm could become an idol for you, a false god. Don't worship anything created because I am unique, you are unique. And I've given you a special relationship with me. Therefore, to practice idolatry is essentially unfaithfulness to the covenant relationship. I want you to read with me in chapter 44 of Isaiah in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since denounced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none. God is declaring to them is to worship anything other than me is to be unfaithful to our unique relationship. Notice in verse 6 that the Lord begins by declaring who he is. He names four of his names. Thus says the Lord, that is Yahweh. Remember when Moses was commissioned by God to go and rescue the people of Israel out of Egypt. As he was reintroduced to the Lord, he said, God, who should I say sent me? And the Lord says to him, I am. I am that I am. Tell them I am sent me. I am the eternally existent one. This is the name Yahweh. It is the the special, unique name that God gave to the nation of Israel, which represented 
his agreement, his marriage contract with them. I am the Lord. I'm the king of Israel. The nations around you, they have earthly kings as the highest authority. Your earthly king is merely my representative. I am the king. You live in a theocracy. You are unlike any other nation around you. I am your redeemer. I'm the one who paid the ransom price. I purchased you out of slavery. I bought you. You are mine. I am the Lord of hosts or literally the Lord who commands the armies. All earthly armies are under my authorities, under my authority, whether it's the Babylonians or the the Persians or the Assyrians or the Egyptians. It doesn't matter even if they don't worship me. They belong to me. All the hosts of heaven, all the armies of heaven, the angelic realms, they answer to me. I have the power. I rescued you once and redeemed you once. I will rescue you again. Worship me and worship me only. And if you fail to, you fail to understand that you are a unique people. And the reason that you are unique is because I am unique. Worship me alone. And don't be reduced to the level of the nations around you. See, Israel was surrounded by an idolatrous culture. What did idol worship look like in their day? Let me give you just a few illustrations. Uh, What you may notice first about this slide is they had lots of idols. Literally thousands and thousands of gods that they worshipped. Because living in the ancient Near East was very precarious. They could starve at any moment in time. They could be overrun by foreign armies any, at any moment in time. So they had gods of war. They had gods of crops. They had gods of rain and sun. They had gods of sex and work, work and crops. They had gods to cover every possible danger that could enter into their lives. And what they wanted from these gods is the promise of deliverance. They wanted to make sure that they would be rescued It says at the end of verse 17, the idolater also prays to it and he says, deliver me for you are my God. Rescue me. Rescue me and bless me. And so ancient idolaters developed all kinds of practices, rituals, through which they could control the God. See, that's the the irony of idolatry is they want this God to do for them something they they feel they can't do for themselves. But they also want to be able to control the God and manipulate the God. So they create entire pantheons and elaborate systems of worship so that they can manage and control the deity that they themselves have created. That's idolatry in the Middle East. And Israel is surrounded by that. And constantly they're tempted to go that direction rather than just trusting in God to rescue them and to bless them. They decide we better cover all our bases. We better cover all our bases. And maybe God isn't powerful enough to control wind and rain and sun and crops and foreign armies that might come in. We need to also worship the nations around us. And they were constantly drawn into idolatry. What are some modern gods? Well, fortunately, we've outgrown this whole concept, right? We don't, uh, we don't have any idols today, do we? We don't worship any false gods in our world. In Ezekiel, the Lord says this, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. And what the Lord is saying is, idolatry is essentially a matter of the heart. It's not essentially a matter of a small figurine or even a large statue like Nebuchadnezzar made. Fundamentally, idolatry is a matter of the heart. And so these men in Ezekiel's day had actually set up their idols in their hearts. They're false gods. A man named Thomas Oden to find idolatry like this. He said, one has a God 
when a finite value is worshipped and adored and viewed as that without which one cannot receive life joyfully. I thought that was a really well-stated definition. That without which one, one cannot receive life joyfully. I have to have that in order to have joy. Something that's finite that we elevate to a transcendent place in our lives. It takes the place of God. Timothy Keller uh, recently wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And he defined it like this. Counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Gotta have that thing. And if I have that thing, then I will have value. Then I will have meaning. Then I will have joy in life. And if I don't have it, life hardly seems to be worth living. Keller goes on in this book, To make this comment, he says, our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. And see, I think sometimes we look back at these ancient cultures and we think, how incredibly ignorant were these people? Well, you know, they were not. These are very intelligent people. In fact, they built some things without technology and we still don't know how they were able to do so. We don't know how the ancient Egyptians constructed the pyramids without cranes. We don't know how they did it. These were very intelligent people and yet overcome with idols. Our culture is really not that different. That's what Keller is is commenting on. He says each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and to ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, But when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. And he goes on and on and talks about the parallels between ancient culture and modern culture. So what are some of the idols today? Let me list just a few of them for you. Money, freedom, body, technology and science, education, intelligence, family, ministry, service, ideologies, causes, fame, praise, position, power, really could go on and on. Maybe you've observed, okay, sports, somebody want to throw in a few more? Go ahead. We can have interaction. You may not want to say it out loud because then people will know. I'm sure God is. They had lots of gods. We have lots of gods. And notice none of these things are necessarily bad things. The Bible never says money, for example, is bad. Money is not evil. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, Paul says. He goes on in Colossians, he says, greed, or literally, the desire to have more. He says, that's 
a form of idolatry. Greed is idolatry, says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Because money all of a sudden is elevated to this place where money can rescue me, money can deliver me, money can give me the good life, the blessed life. If I just have enough, I'll be safe and secure and have value and meaning. Then it has become a God rather than a tool, rather than a servant. It's worshiped. Freedom. Specifically, I mean by that freedom of expression. Okay? One man sacrifices family for the sake of money and career. As Keller says, it's like a ritual sacrifice of children and wife and family for the sake of money. The artist sacrifices sometimes financial security for the sake of freedom. I have to be able to express myself. I have principles in my art. And even if I'm going to starve, (laughs) the starving artist is an icon in our culture who will not sacrifice the principles of his art even though he can't make a living. No one wants to buy his art. Freedom is is an idol. It's exalted to the ultimate place. Health and well-being may sacrifice, be sacrificed. Family may be sacrificed. Uh, body. Body's a huge idol in our culture. We're a very sensual, visual culture. So not just eating disorders, as Keller mentions, but uh, workout addictions where people are in the gym constantly and they, they just have to get their body to the, 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 the perfect place. I remember a few years ago, I, I was flipping through channels and I stopped on Discovery Channel and they were having a, a special on implants. And not what you think. It was, it, was imp, it was implants. A guy was getting implants into his calf muscles. Okay? Because he, was really, he really liked his biceps and he liked his triceps and his traps. Everything looked good. But he just couldn't get his calf muscles to bulge the right direction. So he got implants in his calf muscles. And it was really interesting watching the psychology of this young guy. I thought, you know, he's going to have to wear shorts everywhere. So people can see his calf muscle. He felt like, you know, I will be satisfied with my body if my calf muscles are the right shape. And once I'm satisfied with my body, life will be good. It's a really interesting dynamic. Body can become an idol. Technology and science, if we just put the right minds with the right amount of money on these problems for long enough, technology, science can rescue us. We can solve disease and famine and we will be safe. Education and intelligence, particularly in a university town, that can rescue us. It can save us. We can save our city. If we can just educate people, we can save whole cultures. If we can just educate people, we can get rid of racism. If we just educate people, you should not be racist. I doesn't solve it because racism is a spiritual issue. People don't see themselves as made in the image of God or others as made in the image of God and consequently interact with one another on that level. They don't have the tools to forgive because they've never been forgiven in Jesus Christ. So there cannot be a solution to racism through education, for example. Can't solve all our cultural woes through that. Family can become an idol particularly among evangelical Christians. This is one of the things we exalt above everything else. We need to make the family happy. Well, the family's not ultimate. The family exists to serve God. So you see families making all kinds of sacrifices of other principles in order to make the family happy, make children happy. You know, I don't care you know, who, that, who she marries, just as long as she's happy. It's a principle that's being sacrificed. You don't believe that family can become an idol. Read Genesis chapter 22. God gave to Abraham a son. He always wanted a son. This is the son of promise. 
All the future rests on this sun. Man, we better protect the sun. God says, let's test that. Take your only son. I want you to go up on a mountain. I want you to tie him down, put wood underneath him, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Because I need to know if something finite, something created has become elevated to a transcendent place, do you worship Isaac? Or do you worship me? Ministry can become an idol. When ultimate meaning is derived from what I give to others, then I'm not giving for the sake of others. I'm giving for myself. So I'll have meaning and I will have significance. Ideologies and causes can be idols. When we believe that a particular political party can rescue our culture from all of the woes, and if that particular party has the right ideology dominating that party, then we can be rescued. We can have better domestic policy and better foreign policy so we can bring peace and prosperity to the world, even the Middle East, right? No. No. Fame, praise, position, power, these become idols for us. Our culture really worships these things. You know, I I did a a Google image search yesterday on the word idol. What do you think came up when I searched on idol? Interestingly, okay, American Idol is one of the things that came up. Okay. Six pages of images. There was only one of little statues. Okay. Ancient Near Eastern idols. All the rest were of people. Okay. Pretty people. Right. Really handsome and beautiful people. Uh, really talented people. Some people who weren't talented at all. They were just famous for being famous. Right. And then I, got, I picked up a couple other images that I thought were kind of fun. Yeah. American Idol came up. But also Indian Idol. And then one even for Babylonian Idol. Famous for being famous. It's a value and people will do absolutely anything. They will sacrifice anything. Sometimes the parents will sacrifice their children for fame. That's an idol. Anything that's taking the place of God. Now, what I want you to notice about everything on this list is this. That all these things could be considered good. Good things make the best idols. Bad things don't make very good idols. Drugs and alcohol don't make a very good idol. Because they quickly destroy lives. And so our culture says, bad, that's a bad idol. But you love your job, you love your career, and you're moving up. Love your family. Invest in technology, education. Those things are inherently good. Even fame, praise, position, power. There's nothing necessarily wrong with those things. You can use fame to exalt the glory of God and make him famous. Good things make better idols. Bad things make bad idols. That is why idolatry is so subtle as it reaches into our lives. Ancient Near Eastern people were very idolatrous. Modern people are very idolatrous. We have our own rituals and practices. If we appease the God, we can ward off disaster and we can receive blessing. Look back with me in chapter 44, verse 8. The Lord says to the people, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none. The idolatry is first and foremost covenant unfaithfulness. It's unfaithfulness to a unique and special intimate relationship with God. Second, 
Idolatry is rejection of revealed truth. Notice what he says here. Have I not long since denounced it to you and declared it? Well, what has he announced? He has announced simply this, that he is the unique God. He's the one true God. God says, the omniscient God says, do you know of any other gods? Because I don't. Oh, by the way, I know everything. And I don't know of any other gods. And I have revealed that to you. Israel, I have made it known. I gave you special revelation, the word of God. I gave you all of nature that proves that I am unique and transcendent. Idolatry is a rejection of revealed truth. Paul put it like this in Romans. For they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Okay, literally it says, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. My translation says a lie. Literally it is for the lie. What is the lie? The lie is that the creature in any form or any manifestation or anything else that has been created in heavens above, in the skies, on earth, or the waters below is worthy to take the place of God and be worshipped. It is an exchange. Okay? That is the lie. It's, it's the first lie. Satan came to Eve and said, you don't have to remain in this subservient position to God. You can be like God. You can be like God. Notice with me in verse 9. It says, those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile. And their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Uh, What is the lie? Well, the lie is everything gets turned upside down. And the creature becomes worthy of worship. He says here, verse 9, those who fashion a graven image uh, are all of them futile. Uh, That word for futile is uh, tohu in Hebrew. We were first introduced to that in the book of Genesis. It means void or, or literally chaos. It means chaos. When Satan introduced sin into the universe, things became disorderly or chaotic. God created order. Sin creates disorder. The fundamental disorder is that anything created is worthy of worship. Turns everything upside down. So what is God doing in the world right now? Well, he's he's putting things right. He does it first through believers who have their lives in order. God and all other loves. And we stand as a visible witness to the priority and the uniqueness of God. And when we allow idols to rise up into our lives, we are believing the lie. Okay? And our worlds get turned upside down and we become no different from anyone else. Idolatry is commitment to the lie. Look at verse 13. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass, he makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Uh, the best idol that a man can make is in his own image. He'll say later, he makes a graven image of himself because his highest thought is the highest form of creation, which is mankind, made in the image of God. So his most lofty thought is a thought of himself. He makes an image of himself and then he falls down to worship. Idolatry is fundamentally worship of self. So if you look at these, these uh, ancient pantheons of gods, they begin to take on human characteristics. 
our best characteristics, but also our worst characteristics. They're petty and jealous. They fight. They try to kill each other. Marduk, chief god of the Babylonians, actually killed his mother. Okay, they're always fighting. They're always jealous. They're always lying. They're stealing. They're immoral. Just like fallen mankind. And what Isaiah will say is the idol cannot rise above the level of its creator. It can only get to that level. Look to me in chapter 44 and verse 10. Who has fashioned a God or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass. He makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. And what Isaiah is saying is the gods are limited by their maker. And hopefully you picked up on the incredible sarcasm that God is speaking through Isaiah here. He's saying this man chooses to make an idol for himself. So he goes out and he selects the best tree that he can find, which he didn't make grow, by the way. The rain made it grow. He didn't make the seed or the sapling. He didn't do any of that. But, but he selects the tree. And after he cuts it down and he hauls it all the way back to his house, you know what? He's exhausted. He's tired. And he puts in all of this effort and all of this skill, this craftsmanship that God has given him. And as a result of all the effort he extends in making his God, he's completely worn out. It wears him out to make a God. Now, that is an echo of the end of Isaiah chapter 40 that ended like this, remember? Our God does not grow weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Vigorous young men stumble badly. Youths grow weary, they get worn out. The one who waits on the Lord will never wear out. The one who makes his own God is going to exhaust himself. His arm gets out. I can't hammer anymore. I'm sore. I got pulled a muscle. He's got to stop. The God cannot be elevated above the level of its maker. And so what you see in these pantheons of gods in our own gods is there have to be lots of them because we've got to cover all our bases. And the gods literally had to be carried around and when they would sit in a house, sometimes they would nail them down so that they wouldn't fall over. When the earth quakes, things that men have made don't stand. So nail them down. Attach them securely. Food would be brought to the idols. You've probably seen this. You walk into a Chinese restaurant and there's the Buddha. And there's apples and fruit and so forth. Got to bring fruit, food to them. Got to clear it away each day because they don't really have mouths and they can't speak. They don't have hands. They can't pick anything up. They don't have legs. They can't walk around. They have to be carried anywhere they go. And the problem with that is when they're defeated, they can also be carried off. That's exactly what happened to the Babylonian gods. There's a relief, actually, a Persian relief that has a picture of the Persian kings having their people carry off the Babylonian gods because they're limited, they're weak. They are not any greater than the one who made them. 
Second, he says, the gods are limited by the materials from which they are made. Verse 15, the tree that he has cut down becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of the trees and he warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast. He's satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, wait a second, I burned half of it in the fire. I also baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and I eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? One of the words that is translated idol in your Old Testament is literally lie. It's a lie. See what he's saying here? The man takes the tree and he cuts it up into pieces. He's got two blocks of wood, but he's so wiped out. The first thing that he's got to do is he's got to make a fire and eat and get himself warmed up. So he takes one of the logs, this one, and burns it. And then accidentally, this is the one that he'll keep aside for his God. And in the end, what does he do? He says he ends up feeding on ashes. Because his God is made out of created matter. And not only just made out of created matter, but made out of inanimate created matter. Doesn't have eyes or ears or a mouth. Can't think, it can't speak, it can't do anything. And this is what he's worshiping. He falls down before a block of wood. He is utterly foolish. He's utterly foolish. So in the end, in the final analysis, idolatry is demonic. It is taking that which is created or is made from created matter by someone who is created and it is elevating it to the place of God. That is the lie of Satan. To take the place of God. But God is unique. He's transcendent. In pagan theology, God was a part of nature. He was in nature. Certain trees or rocks or jewels had a little bit more God. And so you wanted to harvest them. You'd capture a little more of God. And you could make it into an idol. In biblical theology, God says, no, I am utterly distinct from creation. I am transcendent. I am the unique one. And I say unique, I mean unique. Nothing else is unique, really. Just God. Because there is only one. And when you put anything else in its place and you love that and you want, you believe that that can bring meaning in life or value or deliverance, it's idolatry. So in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, he says, this worship of false gods, that was sacrificed to demons because Satan is behind anything that moves to replace God. The result is always devastating. Verse nine, it says, those who fashion a graven image are all of them chaotic. They're Void. 
Their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or to know so that they will be put to shame. So someday you'll experience shame. Right now their eyes may be blinded, but someday they'll see the one true God and they'll see him relative to a block of wood or stone or metal and it will be shame. So not only shame, but they will experience uncertainty and fear because sometimes the gods don't cooperate. Sometimes they don't do what we ask them to do or tell them to do or try to manipulate them to do. Verse 11, behold, all of his companions will be put to shame for the craftsmen themselves are just mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. Third, spiritual blindness and spiritual malnutrition for those who worship idols. What I mean by that is, remember in verse 20, he says he feeds on ashes. And what what Isaiah is pointing to is this, that one block of wood goes into the fire, one becomes a god. But they're both made of the same material. So as he's worshiping the block of wood, it is as if he's dipping into the fire that has gone out and he's just, he's just eating the ashes. Okay? It's false worship and so he's spiritually malnourished. He's deprived. And then the worst of consequences is that it diminishes humanity. It reduces us to the level of a block of wood. No better. The psalmist puts it like this. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, even everyone who trusts in them. Because the fundamental principle of idolatry is that we become like what we worship. We resemble what we revere. And if we revere anything that is created, we sink down to that level. That was the great tragedy of Israel's existence. It's a tragedy of our existence. When we elevate anything above the place of God, we become like what we worship. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them for deliverance, for blessing, for the good life, for safety. Those who make them become like them. So what's the remedy? Let me give you a few thoughts. What's the solution for idolatry? A couple ideas. First, we all need to identify our idols. If you don't have an idol right now, you've got certain things in your life that have great potential for becoming idols in your life. And good things make better idols. How can you identify them? Uh, Let me give you a few questions to think through in your own mind. First, uh, what are your most enticing dreams? You say to yourself, if only I had that, then I would feel valuable, significant, loved, appreciated. What are the things that, ah, yeah, if I just had that, it probably is a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. Okay? What are your nightmares? So not just what are your most enticing dreams, but what are your nightmares? What do you fear the most? If that thing is taken away, life is not really worth living. Third, what are your most relentless emotions? Uncontrollable anger, despondency, guilt. Idols control us because we believe we must have them. So when there is a threat to our idols, we become angry. Or we become despairing. What are those emotions that just take over you? Those are indicators. This thing may be creeping up. 
into the realm of idolatry. It may be trying to transcend a finite thing trying to take the place of the ultimate. We need to know what these things are. What are our particular vulnerabilities? For some of us, it may be money and possessions. For others, it may be prestige and fame, the approval of others. For some of us, it may be relationship. You need to know yourself. Where are you vulnerable? Second, how do we solve that? Practice informed worship. What I mean by that is illustrated in chapter 44, verse 21. It says, remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you, and you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree. That is, everything created. Turn and worship God. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. That word in verse 21, remember, doesn't mean just call it to mind. It means activate it. Activate your faith. Remember the thief on the cross says, Lord, remember me when you enter into paradise. He isn't saying, Jesus, when you go into paradise, just think about me. Down here dying on my own cross. No, he's saying, remember me. That is, come get me. And the Lord says to his people, Remember, that is, activate your faith. Focus on the things that are true. That I am unique. That I am the one true God. Is there any other? I know of none, the Lord says. Who alone should be loved? Most of all, it's me. To put it very practically, the solution is not to love good things less. It is to love God so much more. In other words, I'm not saying love your family less or love your job less or love education less. I'm not saying love those things less. What I'm saying is love God so very much more that those things cannot become ultimate in your life. All of these things that are potential idols can be very, very good things, but they are nowhere near our love for God. Put them in their proper place. Live as Christians who worship the one unique God and he alone stays exalted in our life and everything else falls into place underneath that. Good things, things that we love, but we love God most. That is informed worship, wise worship. I'm going to leave you with one verse from the Apostle Paul that I think really synthesizes this whole process in our lives. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We become like what we worship. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for not leaving us in the dark. I thank you for reminding us of of true truth, of ultimate truth, that you alone are unique, that you are the one true God, that nothing else and no one else can take your place. And when something else begins to rise to your place, it creates chaos and disorder in our lives. You are the one only who can deliver us from the ultimate things we need to be delivered from, our sin and death. You're the only one who can ultimately bless us and give us hope. That is the hope of eternal life. And you cannot be controlled because you are God. So we leave you in your place, God, and we worship you. And I pray, Father, that you would make it clear to us what are the idols in our hearts or those things that could become idols, that we would cast them down, we'd crush them. 
and you alone would be exalted. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Have a great spring break. We'll see you next week.